so what am I now, 43, and I've had a real job in there uh, once. It, 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 it was a big mistake, and I made it early on, and I never could fully correct it, which is, we didn't make it web-based. Developing products have a much higher risk factor than, say, you know, a consulting business. To lose early, and that actually was the business advice that somebody gave to me. In this uh, Zerb Soapbox, we're talking to John Marshall, the founder of ClickTracks and Market Motive. And uh, he stopped by today to talk to us about what he learned as an entrepreneur transitioning from product to service and why Van Halen matters to a business. Um, thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy Soapbox with John Marshall. All right. Um, I'm looking at Brian because he's your fearless leader. <laughs> I was just going to, you know, everybody knows John Marshall, ClickTracks. Uh, just have you kind of tell us a bit about ClickTracks, how that was started, what the vision was for that, and then uh, your current company and how you transitioned to the new company and kind of mistakes along the way. Mm. And, uh, um, just the path. All right. Uh, um, are you in more interested in um, business decisions, sort of product Development, technical, marketing decisions. What are you more interested in? Marketing. Product. The survey, I think that's what's interesting in your story is that you've learned from a product and growing an audience, and then you now have a, a different type of vision, which is a product, but it's still service oriented, you know, in, in education. And how do you actually stick with your learning from a product and then try to stay? Yeah, okay. All right, so. Um, uh, Thank you, actually. Um, maybe a little bit of background. Uh, I'm, um, I describe myself as a software entrepreneur, and um, I have had a real job once. So what am I now, 43? And I've had a real job in there uh, once. Um, and I sold software. Um, I think I started selling software when I was 14, and I wrote video games, and I sold them. And they were on cassette tapes. There's some young people here who probably don't even know what cassette tapes are. But, you know, you bought software back then on cassette tapes, pre-floppy disk. And, uh, you know, I, I wrote the games myself. I wrote the code. And sold them. And I would come home from school and there would be orders. I, I, I produced the ad. I ran the ad in the back of the magazine, if you can believe that. I did the, I did the layout of the ad, such as it was. Um, you know, did all of that nonsense. And I actually duplicated the cassettes and I put them in jiffy bags and I mailed them to customers <laughs> and I took the checks then to school the next day and on the way home I would drop the checks in at the bank, right? This, I mean, this is actually the, the nonsense that I did. And it, it made money. It didn't make, it actually didn't make a huge amount, but I, you know, I think relative to my age it was, uh, it was pretty good. Um, so that sort of uh, very quickly, very early got me into the idea of um, selling software as a product, um, and I think my outlook is very, very heavily biased towards um, the product world as opposed to the, um, the consulting world. Um, and I, I, I have this sort of spectrum of things that I think about in, um, in products versus uh, you know, other things that you, you, you try to make money on. Um, and you sort of start from the worst end of the spectrum and you go to the best end of the spectrum. The worst end of the spectrum is probably 
um, of a shop, you know, an actual store where you're, you're dependent on people coming into the store, and it ends up becoming a job that you can't ever quit, and it's just, you know, it's a complete nightmare. Um, and then I think a step up from that probably is um, as a business which is consulting, and consulting is great, and I'll tell you a little bit more about what I think about consulting. Um, but I think product-type things are a step beyond that. And the obvious reason, of course, is that a consulting business, um, it has this sort of natural cap on growth, and it becomes really difficult to grow it beyond a certain point. And a product business tends to not have such a severe cap. Actually, if it does have a cap, then you've probably got something wrong with it. However, that is also, and it's important to understand, that's my bias, you know, because that's my background, and I so love products and making them and selling them that I pretty much force that viewpoint into whatever I'm looking at, and I think I can't help it. Um, so the, 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 there's your little bit of background. Um, the the ClickTracks product, the way that it came about, was actually, does everybody know what, what ClickTracks sort of became famous for? The yeah, the, 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 yeah. So uh, what happened was I was, um, I was working at a company. I was actually, I was actually um, running a software company. It was a really small company, and I was hired to run it. And it was during the dot-com boom, and it kind of didn't work out like a whole load of those other things did. Um, it was a VC-backed company, and that's another thing that I didn't like about it because it didn't get on too well with VCs. Um, so the, at that company, um, I was using WebTrends, which was you know, the big product back then that we use. You guys probably use Google Analytics more than anything else. And WebTrends was the 800-pound you know, gorilla of that product space. Using that product, it sucked. I mean, it just was awful, and everything about it was awful. And uh, I came up with the idea that if you showed people the web page, the actual page that you're interested in analyzing, and you put next to each hyperlink a little bar that says, so many people clicked on this link, and so many people clicked on this link, right? That whole model, you see that in Google Analytics, and it works on most websites, um, then you know, that will tell you a lot more about what's going on on the site. And I felt that all of the pie charts and the 3D bar charts and all the rest of it that was going on in WebTrends was not useful. I just want to know what people click on. If I know what people click on, I can pretty much work out everything else that I need to know. So that little invention was sort of my contribution to the whole process. And ClickTracks, the name was derived from that invention. The name also was a domain name that I could buy fairly cheaply from a guy who wasn't using it. And there are a bunch of other reasons. It was early in the alphabet. You know, there's a bunch of reasons why we chose ClickTracks, um, a lot of which were perhaps boiled down to it was the least bad option. But the name at least did um, describe the product, you know, ClickTrack, and it, it kind of worked. Um, and we, um, you know, we, and I decided that I would launch that as a, as a software product, which I would sell to people. Right? So it wasn't going to be a consulting thing where I was going to work out people's websites for them. It's going to be a product that you could buy and use. And there were a few rules that we set in that product, in the development of it, um, which were you've got, it's got to work within 10 minutes. It, you, know, you remember all of that stuff? We had this... Early on, we had the lunch back guarantee. Do you remember that? Where if you, if the product didn't work for you, we'd yeah. buy you lunch. Right? It actually was. We actually had that on the website, and it was McDonald's vouchers. <laughs> one guy, one guy said, "I think this this thing didn't work," and I went to McDonald's and I bought vouchers and I mailed them to him. <laughs> yeah, you know, it was a bunch of little gimmicks like this. A lot of that thinking, um, actually, Brian and I would would kick around that stuff. A lot of it was because. 
WebTrends was a really big, stodgy company, and everybody hated them. So it was very easy to be the scrappy little startup next to them, and they were a natural foil to our sort of lunacy, you know, because everybody hated these guys over here. So anyway, the, 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 the product um, had these certain rules, and it needed to work in this amount of time and so on. Crucial mistake which I made in the development of the product, and it, it, it was a big mistake, and I made it early on, and I never could fully correct it, which is we didn't make it web-based. We tried, yeah. Yeah, we tried, and we sort of were able to make it web-based, and there were good reasons why we didn't, and there was a whole lot of stuff behind it, but the reality is other people did, and uh, they ended up with a more popular product. They didn't end up with a better product, but they certainly made a more popular product and they, were, they became more successful because of that. And I think I didn't do that because my own background was, you know, from the age of 14, I write code that runs on the machine that's in front of you. And that was my mindset. And it has been very hard for me to move away from that to, you know, a cloud computing world. And actually, I'm still a little bit uncomfortable with the cloud computing world. I, it still makes me a little bit uneasy. I don't like using webmail. I want my mail on my machine, thank you very much. And I think that's a reflection of my age, right, where the, the younger guys here go, what the hell is this guy talking about? Why on earth would you want anything on your machine? But, you know, I'm, 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 I'm willing to acknowledge it and admit it, and it's hard for me to, to move away from that model. So that was an example of this sort of product traditional product, and of course you can have software as a service, which really is also a product, but I think you'll agree there's a slight difference there, and I never got into that mode, and it limited what we did with the company, and that was, uh, that was unfortunate. I think we, given the architecture of the product, we actually did a pretty good job uh, of dealing with the limitations, but I, I baked into the DNA of the product that limitation right from the start. That was a mistake. i sure you... You, Brian would beat me up over this a lot, and, uh, yeah. Why is it there's <laughs> Yeah. Um, so it turned out okay. Yeah, you know, I mean, yeah, that's right. It turned out okay. So, um, Brian, um, the his, Brian's history with the company was right from the start, I think. No, you weren't the first paid person involved in the project. You were the second paid person. Yeah, personal checks. Early on. Is that right? Did yeah, I got personal checks. Yeah, right. I had to go to your house, which wasn't your house. You were living at someone else's, or your uh, parent-in-law's house. Yes, right, my wife's um, parents' house. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know. In fact, in fact my interview was at his uh, parent-in-law's house. Yeah, it was, across the dining room table. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I remember it well. Um, there, was a, there was a little detail in all of that. Oh, yeah, I remember what it was. Um, just to talk for a moment about entrepreneurship, um, I, I had this idea for the Tracks product, and I, um, I uh, said to my wife, my, my, my wife's name is Lisa, um, and she comes from an entrepreneurial background. Her father was uh, a Silicon Valley entrepreneur. Actually, he invented the CMOS gate array. If any of you probably, but those of you that are into electronics, gate arrays are a big deal, and Lisa's dad was the inventor of the CMOS gate array. And, um, you know, she, for her... Um, conversations about business were a natural part of, um, you know, dinner in the evening, 
her parents would talk about business and the problems and all the rest of it, and she grew up with that. And actually, this was a reason why I wanted to marry Lisa, because it's very hard to meet somebody that is comfortable with this stuff and is comfortable with risk. I mean, it's really hard. And um, products, developing products, have a much higher risk factor than, say, you know, a consulting business or a job, right? If you sort of take it all the way back to, you know, you've got job, very low risk. You've got a shop, you know, where you sell stuff and whatever. That has more risk, but it's certainly, you know, less risk than consulting. That has more risk. And then product is like off the chart over here. And trying to do that kind of stuff, which, as I said, from an early age is what I do. And, and I am an entrepreneur because I'm basically unemployable. Nobody in their right mind would hire me. All right, I make too much trouble. I'm just no, you know, keep this guy out of here. Um, so I'm forced to be an entrepreneur, right? You know, that's I think that's a harsh reality of it. Um, so you know, now you so you go through life and you've got your life partner, your your spouse, and if that person is not on board with that thinking, then it's really limiting for you. So I, one of the things for me that was so wonderful about Lisa is um, she grew up in that world. So going back to the start of ClickTracks, I said to her, you know, I have this idea for a product. And at that point, we were, I was unemployed because I'd been fired from the company that I was purportedly running. Um, and uh, she had this crappy little job selling technical software. Um, and I said to her, I have this idea for a product, and I think it could turn into something. I want to spend our savings developing the product and launching the company. And she was not... <laughs> with us 100%, but she did in the end go along with it. And I think somebody that had not grown up in an entrepreneurial environment would not have done that, would have said, no, you know, the risk is too high, or whatever, whatever, whatever. You know, go get a job, why can't you be a normal person? <laughs> All of the other things that we say in our head, but hopefully don't say out loud if we want to stay married. And, um, uh, you know, of course, it, it worked out okay in the end. I mean, it, you know, everything came together. But I think a really important point about product development is that you, you, you have got to take that such long vision with it, such long-term thinking with it. It can be years before you make revenue, and, hey, you've got to be comfortable with that. And, and Lisa was. So in the, anyway, just to go back, we were talking about, about the early days and the starting it. Um, that meant, because I had my wife's support, and she was okay for us to spend our savings developing the product and launching the product, that meant I didn't have any VCs, I didn't take any outside investors, I didn't do any of that crap. And that was a big deal. That was really a big deal. Um, it meant that I could make the product do what I thought was the right thing to do. I didn't have you know, a VC telling me, you know, I just read this article in Business Week or Forbes about, you know, sales of stuff in China, and I think that you should be, you should be hiring engineers in China. You know, and, no, I'm not going to do that. I think that's dumb. You know, I'm, <laughs> I didn't need to justify all of that because I hadn't taken money from them. Uh, it meant that I could make the product do what I thought the customer wanted, and I didn't need to explain it to anyone. I needed to explain it to Brian, but <laughs> other than that, we didn't need to. Um, so, it, so. What then happened was um, web analytics kind of turned into this fairly hot thing. Everybody wanted to be doing it. The products were hard to develop. Web analytics has this really difficult problem to solve of scalability, and it is a crushing, massive problem that you just can't get away from. 
and um, therefore the ease with which people could bring a web analytics product to market was seriously curtailed, right? You ended up with a small handful of companies that had worked out, you know, different approaches for sure, but how to crack that scalability problem. And uh, that made the whole thing valuable. And, you know, in the end, we were able to sell it. We sold it to a company named Lyris, and uh, that, was a, that was a pretty nice-sized deal. And I didn't have investors, you know, that had diluted Lisa and I out of the picture drastically. So that, that was pretty nice. You mean before we sold it? Yeah. We never recouped it before we sold it. Wow. Yeah. I mean, actually, there were, you know, if you think about it from the, the, the business point of view, um, that initial investment that we made, you know, we spent our money, Lisa and I, to, to, to develop it and launch it. We really did not get that back at all until we sold it. Um, because there were too many times when we're not going to make payroll, right? You know, and, I, and we just write another check to the company. Or uh, I, you know, I, didn't take, I didn't pay myself you know, for months on end, right? There was all that kind of stuff going on, sort of the, uh, the behind-the-scenes stuff of entrepreneurship where, again, if Lisa were not on board, and she, she wasn't thrilled about it, you know, sometimes she, you know, right? <laughs> yeah, so it, it, it was not a... It, it was not a uh, completely straightforward thing, right, to just somehow, you know, not pay yourself for six months. But it, it, it did mean that when in the, in the job interview process, you know, we were hiring people all the time. And there, there was a classic thing, right? Lisa would say, you know, you're, you're hiring people and you're not paying yourself. You know, there's something wrong with that. And I was like, well, you know, I kind of need to grow the company. My instinct is that this is the right thing to do. Somebody would come in for a job interview and uh, they would cheerfully ask me about the profit-sharing plan. You know, tell me about your profit-sharing plan. And I would cheerily look them in the face and say, we don't have one, but we don't have a loss-sharing plan either. Right? And that would shut them up like right there. <laughs> up, the down, no, no, no. Um, so we, you know, we, we did not get the investment back until we sold it. But that's fine, right? So in your uh, transition now into product. You, I mean, what you have now is a, it's usually scales of the product, but there's still a, a service component to it. Yeah. So what's the thinking now between going from, from product to, you know, you've got the bits thing put together, yeah. all the work, and now you have humans that are actually the content. Yeah, I mean, now we sell subscriptions to content. That's what we do now is we, we, we sell a, a training course. That's basically what it is. And uh, I think one of the, the, one of the key things that I wanted to avoid was... Um, being pigeonholed into, I get something from you and I install it on my computer. Having made that mistake before, and maybe I exaggerate in saying I made a mistake. I mean, holy cow, I did still manage to sell the company and it was for a, you know, a, a big return on our investment, so I don't regret that at all. Um, but I did want to rein in that, that problem that I'd created for myself and I wanted to get comfortable selling something other than a tool. Right. I mean, it's basically what I've been doing all the way along is I've been selling tools, and I wanted to get something beyond that, and I felt that subscriptions to content would be a good thing. Now, actually, it turns out there has not been the adoption of it that we expected, mainly because we're ahead of the market. We, we sell people training material right, that teaches, say, SEO or paid search or web analytics. We sell training courses that teach all of that. We have people say to us, is it in Dallas? I, I, I live in Dallas. 
you know, wh when are you coming to Dallas? And it's actually hard to get people to understand that, no, these are online courses, it's video-based material, there's a quiz in there, there's a test, you know, it's a webinar as well, all of this kind of stuff. People still come to our website with, you know, when are you guys coming to Boston? And the problem actually has been that we, we are ahead of the market's expectation there, which I think is surprising, right? Do you find that you, in thinking through the problems, you think about the business in a different way than the product versus the venture, or is it similar types of thinking of how to create the most value for the business? I think in the end, we are still really a product. We think of it as a product. Our customer doesn't. That may be the problem. They don't think of it as a, as a product that they buy. You know, it's... I, I think we saw the way the world was going and, and with content online and all that kind of stuff. And we, because we could see that's the way the world is going, we assumed the market was there as well. And it, it hasn't been. Actually, it's changing now. But we started two years ago, and it, it really wasn't there two years ago. We were too early. Is I think is a reality. We were too early with it two years ago. Now, people are people are starting to catch up to it. The market is sort of catching up to us. You know, I think um, there's one of these quotes attributed to Napoleon that you know a good general leads from the front, but not so far ahead that the curvature of the earth makes them disappear. Right. <laughs> so we may have suffered from doing that, and you know now people are are, are catching up to it. Um, we also do some consulting. You know, we, that's another thing that we do. And um, doing the consulting, and, and here we do say like um, SEO consulting or paid search consulting, web analytics consulting, exactly what you would imagine. It's all you know, fairly straightforward stuff. We do that um, because doing consulting gives you one magic thing, which is knowledge of what the market wants. So, so if you do consulting, and I know you guys are heavily involved in doing that, the, the, the magic of that actually is you start to know what it is that people have big pain with. And your job in offering a product, of course, is either to solve pain or create gain. I mean, you, you've got to do one of those two things or you don't have a product. Um, so you, you start to understand that. And I think that's a, that is something that we do, and we do some consulting. We're try, actually trying to get away from it. We're trying to do less of it because it's starting to become a distraction from you know, selling the product. But in the early days, that was a really useful thing to do. And there's a situation where, despite my bias as a product guy, I forced myself to swallow doing consulting so that we would learn some things. And I don't, I don't really want to be doing consulting, but we have to. Yeah. So, so give us the... Uh Oh, gee. Well, products, I think, well, products have got to solve pain or create gain. And actually, most products solve pain. Most products that we're going to develop, actually, as is, is a sort of a web-based tech, you know, they, they, they solve pain, I think. Is that my natural bias coming in? Is that because I'm a tool guy and I can't help but think of solving problems and that's what tools do? I mean, you, certainly Facebook doesn't solve pain, right? It, yeah, that's a pure gain product. But I tend to think of, of what um, problems the, the product solves. I think if you're, sol if you're selling business products, maybe that's it, then they, they uh, solve pain. So that's number one. What, what's the pain that you're trying to solve? Um, it's got 
to be, you've got to understand the utility very quickly. So, you know, can you grok it in three minutes? Um, can you use it for free? You know, free is, I think free is required. Um, and actually, interestingly, our product, we don't, we don't allow you to use it for free. So we don't, we don't um, meet that rule. So free, so there's lots of, lots of things around free, right? Mm. Free for 30 days, free forever for a limited amount of use. What's your experience? I think they all work in different situations, you know, but, but can you, do you have to give somebody money before you can experience what the product is like? I think that doesn't work anymore. Used to, but the world is you know doesn't world world doesn't work that way now. Actually, I I, I don't I think um, on uh, Notable is there a free version? Yeah, yeah, yeah. for less than three users or yeah, thirty days worth of paper. There you go. So yeah, classic example, right? And you 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 know you you probably couldn't sell any if you didn't have that. Not yeah, yeah. So so then consulting. What are the top three things in in consulting? Um, I think you've got to be personable. They're really different, right? Consulting is a one-to-one human business. You've got to be personable. Um, you've got to be an expert. I don't know. You've got to be good-looking. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it helps, right? <laughs> it's probably true. <laughs> yeah, we're all kind of uncomfortable with that, but it's probably true. Yeah, the Van Halen. Um, it is actually a pretty interesting business. Uh, it's a pretty interesting business and product design, everything else. Okay, so here, so here's the story. Um, does everybody know? Uh, everybody know the um, brown M and M's thing? Does, does, does anybody? Do I need? I think. Does anybody not know the brown M and M's? And in the okay, so I have to explain the, the, the background to it. Um, a uh, uh, there, there's a um, or it's an urban. I was going to say it's an urban myth. It's not. It's actually it's it's completely true. Um, Van Halen, the rock band. Uh, they have, when they went on tour, they had a contract rider, and the contract rider stipulated all kinds of crap that the band must have before they would perform at the venue, all right? Just a litany of stuff. One of the things in the contract rider stipulated the list of snacks that were to be provided backstage. And in the snacks, it explicitly says, M&Ms with all the brown M&Ms removed, all right? This is, and actually, you can... You can see this, and the band agrees this was the case. Now, this became notorious as a sort of an example of the ridiculous ego of rock bands. Like, you know, why would they require this? It also was attributed to the fact that brown M&Ms have this food coloring in them that causes cancer and so on. And why it was the brown ones that people thought, I don't know, when you got the, like, the orange ones in there. Well, I, don't, I never understood that. But people thought that. Okay. So, and I'm not making this stuff up. I mean, it is all over. You can read it in their biographies and everything. There is actually a very good business decision why Van Halen required no brown M&Ms in the snacks. Now, actually, this is the interesting part. Does anybody know the business decision? You, you, you know it. It was to make sure they actually read the contract. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's, that is, that's exactly it. So when Van Halen went into the backstage area, when they arrived, 
and the snacks were supposed to be all set up, they could look at the bowl of the M&Ms, and if there were brown ones in there, they knew that people hadn't read the contract. And that meant that, for example, the weight-bearing uh, uh, part of the stage where all the lighting equipment was going to go, they probably hadn't read that, and they didn't know how much all of the crap that Van Halen brings on stage, how much that weighs, right? and all of these other very important details about the contract. Um, right, they had no idea. So they put that in as a, as a way to lose early. And that actually was the business advice that somebody gave to me a long time ago. Right? If you're going to lose, just lose early. Don't thrash and struggle and find ways to not lose and all the rest of it. There are plenty of situations where losing early is a good thing. And the, and the, the example they gave to me was in sales. Right? Selling a product, lose early. Just because you, you've got to spend your time on something else. And I think um, in, uh, in product design and thinking about the way that we put together products, um, we need to remember that. We need to remember that losing early is a good thing because it allows you to focus on something else instead, right? You, know, you, you may be thrashing around with some little thing over here trying to make it work. Maybe you need to lose early. And we're taught to not do that. We're taught to you know, keep fighting and, and struggle and it's all worth it and uh, only quitters win or something like that, right? What's the, what's the thing? Um, <laughs> yeah, you, you, you know, yeah, winners never quit and uh, uh, quitters always lose or something like that, right? We're, we're taught all that kind of stuff. But you know, there's a flip side to it. Lose early. And I, yeah. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. I think I think VC is actually pretty good at um, telling entrepreneurs, which is that entrepreneurs won't listen. <laughs> and, and by the way, but I'm, that's not quite true. VCs are known for doing a little bit because they have to report to their LCs with the companies with the companies they've already invested in. Yes, I agree. We actually were talking about companies who are pitching for investment. No, no. Yeah. But once the companies are in, VCs actually keep it alive a lot longer than they should. Yes, they, yeah, they do. They have to go back to their partners and LCs and explain to them why they screwed up. Yeah. Better to not book a loss. Right. They, always, they, they want to avoid booking a loss. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm with you 100%. Yeah. What, what else? Yeah. What else? Yeah. It does, actually, yeah. Yeah, it has. We, 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 we see a theme in companies, and they're always struggling with this certain thing, and we do actually then go and put together a course. I think it, it helps less than you would imagine, because the people that we have that build the courses usually are more knowledgeable than we are anyway. So, in fact, they also know it, and they tend to be um, addressing that problem anyway. And that's something that we didn't anticipate. That's another reason we're trying to get out of the consulting because it's helping less than we imagined it would. But I think that's, a, that's unique to the way that our company operates, because we, we draw on these outside experts. That we call them the faculty. They, they teach the material, and they produce the material. They're all highly expert in each of their disciplines, and we serve really to package up their material and put it in a course and put other things around it and sell it. Um, so it's kind of unique to our process of building product that we have also that advantage. Yeah, but it hasn't yeah it hasn't helped as much as you would think. I 
Have you been in a situation where you had to lose early, but you didn't? Yeah, we sold click tracks to companies that didn't, didn't need it, didn't want it, couldn't use it. We did. And sometimes we would thrash and um, try to make that customer happy. And it was a mistake. We should have just said, uh, right at the beginning, we should have said, I'm going to give you a refund. And I'm going to write you the check this second. Now, actually, in one case, I did do that. I did. Because I, maybe it was, I can't remember if it was early on or late on. If it was late on, I probably learned by this point. But yeah, there were customers where we tried to save the sale. We'd already sold it to them. It wasn't the right product for what they wanted to do. But I was going to try and convince them it was. Never worked. It never worked. We should have just cut them a check at week one instead of waiting until week 12. You know, and I'm 60 hours into it. Huh. You know, scaling your business uh, takes up like about 40 employees. That's about right, yeah. And now you said you have a core base of four employees. Yeah. Have you learned anything in the scaling and how you make decisions on product as you're scaling the, the click track? Have you applied that to the new business or have you basically tried to replicate the same type of uh, methodology for, for making decisions on product? I think. Um, the problems at ClickTracks were orders of mag magnitude more complex. So we, we could attempt to develop a feature in the product which then couldn't scale. And it, it, although it was a clever idea, it just wasn't going to work because of the unique nature of what you're trying to do in web analytics. Um, and that made a more consensual approach uh, because it had to be. Because our CTO, you know, Dr. Turner, he and I would kick it around, and, he, and I'd say, I've got this great idea. And he'd say, yeah, well, you know, we can't do that because we have to measure the size of the entire universe, and we can't do that. Thank you very much. Right? And I go, oh, yeah, right, I didn't think of that. Okay, so let's go back to measuring the size of the room because we can manage that. Um, so the, the discussion about what the product should do at ClickTracks was very tightly bound up in what can we technically make work in a scalable way. Market motive... It, it isn't that way. We can just pretty much do whatever we want, and we know that we can make it scale because you know we're dealing with you know a few thousand people. I mean, it's trivial, right? It's it's there there is no scalability problem, so it's 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 easier now. No, we don't actually. You would think it would lead us to making decisions faster, but we don't. And part of the reason that we don't make the decisions so quickly is not is we can't. It's too easy for us to trip up our existing user base. So we can't do things in the product because they're using it as an educational tool and people view education as this very logical step-by-step -step thing and we, we bamboozle them. If we throw something into the middle of it, you know, their brain explodes. So we actually take a more measured approach than you would think. It's, it's ironic. The, 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 we're more free but we're also more constrained by what our customers expect. Ed education is quite, quite old-fashioned, even if you're delivering it online. Because right. I would imagine if you introduce something new, why didn't you know that before when I gave you money to teach me something? Yeah, and it's also, yeah there's, there's that. I, I, do I really trust you guys to absolutely have all the answers? Because you seem to have not had all the answers two weeks ago. Right. <laughs> because now you claim to have all the answers. Yeah, so it, 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 is, it requires care. It requires care. But 
I think the the decision making process at ClickTracks worked really well because um, I I ended up being the customer. I was the customer of the product. If the product worked for me, it would work for the customer, right? And that was I was in effect the product manager as well as running the company. I was the product manager, and then we had um, CTO. Uh, this guy, Dr. Stephen Turner, I mean, a really, really bright guy, um, stats background. And he could say, he could both say, we can't calculate that piece of data that you want, and it's not useful anyway. Here's an alternative piece of data that we can calculate and is much more useful. Right? And we were a natural foil to each other. So I think it, it worked well at ClickTracks, but it was a personality thing also at ClickTracks. So the data would decide which feature you would add to the product. Or would it be you? So Dave uh, from Technorati talked about this. He, mm. said he was a major customer of the product, where he would uh, think a certain feature would fulfill his own needs, and mm -hmm. he'd end up implementing that, and uh, kind of looking at the data, but not really, and sort of got himself in a little bit of trouble. Um, any experience with that? We mean adding a feature that actually wasn't useful. You weren't actually using your own company to analyze what was. So getting kind of lazy with the decision making because it's good for you, so we'll build products for me. But at a certain point, you missed an opportunity. Yeah, we did. We added features that um, that I thought would be really useful, and uh, people never used. People didn't use them. They didn't use them sometimes because they couldn't understand them. You know, um, I'm trying to think back to some of the things that we added, but there, there were there were there were a lot of examples of that where because I was so dominant in asserting. I want the product to be able to do these things. I mean, I, I was right more than I was wrong. You know, this is about all we can hope for in life, right? <laughs> but I was still spectacularly wrong in some important areas. Uh, this is a very tactical uh, question, actually. But uh, I remember uh, ClickTrack seeing some video stuff and trying to make you know, share ideas through video. Yeah. And maybe you guys do it heavily with not just uh, mobile. Is there anything you've learned from using video? Hmm. Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, Time of videos, content of videos, reason why you use them, before a sale, after a sale. Um, we use them. The, the product that we sell is primarily these, these uh, videos. But one thing that we avoid in the videos is talking head. We try to avoid that. So we, in the, in the actual training content, we record a live voice and we record screenshots and we annotate the screenshots with what's going on. Um, if you have a talking head, that is associated with um, cheap, poor quality stuff that you can get for free. Right? So, so if, you, if you're talking about SEO and you know, say you're trying to teach SEO, um, I can go to YouTube and I can watch a whole load of videos on SEO. Um, there are two things that they, they, they all fall into the same look and feel, which is talking head um, and sort of a loose, free-form structure of explaining things. Now, some, some of the ones from Google actually are a bit better. Matt Cutts will get on the whiteboard, and he'll use a whiteboard. That's a step better. We go a, a step even further than that, and we do um, 
a structured a table of contents that you can navigate around, you can skip back and forth. You can, you know, the table of contents basically sums up, here's what we're going to talk about. The material typically runs for 30 to 50 minutes. It cuts to screenshots, it annotates the screenshots, it does all this other stuff, and we avoid the talking head because talking head is associated with, you know, hey, I just, I just grabbed this off YouTube, and it's very hard to make money selling that. Really, the key background to all of that is if you give somebody a structured curriculum, they're willing to pay for it. But if you give them a bunch of YouTube videos, they are not, unsurprisingly. <laughs> and you, I mean, you guys did some loose training in explaining click We did, yeah. Did you learn anything about if people were watching videos that actually got more engagement or if they actually confused users? You're talking about the stuff that we did, like, right on the very first version of the website, the, like the yeah, three-minute demo, or you, or you're talking about the... 30-second clips and, you know, click way you were trying to get... Yeah, the, with the stuff that was like a video of me. Yeah, that was really just an attempt to get some sort of thought leadership associated with the company and other things like that. No, I don't think actually I don't think there was any value there in the end. Yeah, yeah. So what um, one of the things that we did, I, I can say the following was highly effective. Right? Maybe we could have done other variants of this, but the following was highly effective. We put on the front page of the website a uh, two-minute demo of the product, and it was not. It was it was a video, although it was you know flash-based screenshots, Camtasia type thing. It showed the product and it gave you a tour of the product in two minutes. And we actually found that if we made the video three minutes long, it, it did worse. And we we said at the on the button, you know, watch a two-minute demo. I don't know if you remember that, but actually we actually put in there two minutes. And in fact, it lasted two minutes, like. 50 seconds or something like that. But we needed to be able to plausibly claim that you're going to watch this thing for only two minutes. And that's, that resonated with people because our customers were in a hurry and they didn't want to sit around. And we, we needed to promise them we're not going to waste your time. So if you watched that video, you were like eight times more likely to, to buy the product from us than if you didn't watch that demo. It was, it was incredibly strong. If, you, if we could get you to watch the two-minute demo... Um, you would buy the product. And part of the reason for that is that the product itself was highly demoable. I don't know if you remember, but I think back then, software products were so clunky that the demo was really important to establish to people that this thing doesn't suck because so much stuff out there did and still does. It's less of a problem now because products are more web-based now, so the pain of trying a product out is lower. But back then, you can imagine, I'm going to install this thing, and I'm going to find out that it sucks. Last time I installed something on my computer, I had to get IT to come over and you know, pour a cup of coffee into it, and it was a complete nightmare. So I'm never going to install crap again. Right? That was one of our barriers to sale. And one way that we got past that was that the demo actually looked pretty good, and the product worked well. So that was one video-based thing. The other thing was the live demo when we did the webinars. And again, maybe you don't, you don't remember that, but... You, yeah, so we did a, a live demo of the product um, three times a week at 7 a.m., 9 a.m., and 11 a.m. on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I think, something like that. And, and I did those demos. So we invited people in. You could sit there, you could watch the product, and you could ask questions. And that was a huge, that was a huge important selling point. Yeah? Like, do you think, does Google Analytics, do you think it sucks, or do you think it's a good product? Because, I mean, that's like, that's kind of a big web-based, you know, what's the end about that? Yeah, it, um, 
No, it doesn't suck. No. Um, it is good enough for many people. The fact that it integrates with AdWords is probably the key feature. If it weren't for that, um, but it does, um, it does segmentation, for example, right? And segmentation was a feature of ClickTracks that was really, really important. It does segmentation in a very poor way. It's just not very good. And um, it's hard for me to, it's hard for me to look at the design choices made by the the team with, um, you know, with with with, this, with the way segmentation works in Google Analytics, and even, it's actually more specifically the way it's reported, um, and not think back to when at ClickTracks we made those same design choices, and I would say to Stephen, you know, here's what I want. I want this table, and it's going to show this, and then it's going to show this right next to it, and People are going to love it. Now, it seems to me that at, at Google, that's as far as it's gone. At ClickTrack, Stephen would say, that is not good enough. You, you know, if you do it this way, then you get even more data out of it. And then we can do this trick, and it'll be even better. And, and we, we really got that kind of stuff nailed. So it's hard for me to look at the, what Google Analytics does and not think back to us making the same design choices and coming up with something better. However, I can't ignore the fact that they chose to make it web-based. And that, you know, that we didn't, and we were idiots. Thank you. Thank you.